Well, if you have your Bible, open up to 2 Timothy. It's probably easier to start at the very back in the book of Revelation and start moving to the left. You'll go through the epistles of John and Peter and then Hebrews, James, and eventually get to 2 Timothy, one of three pastoral epistles. We did have a study guide or have a study guide that's been created for uh, this series, and there was a limited printing because... Well, you'll see there's blue smeared all over a bunch of them because the copier decided to be demon-possessed. So we will have more uh, next week, but there should be some still left downstairs. Um, I'm going to begin this morning by talking about a guy named uh, Randy Pausch, P-A-U-S-C-H. I'm not sure that's how it's pronunciated, but we're going to move forward. He is uh, or was a professor of computer science, human-computer interaction, and design at Carnegie Mellon University. So he sounds super wicked smart. The university um, was well known for its last lecture series. You may be familiar with this. And what this was was top academics uh, were asked to think deeply about what mattered to them most and then to impart these words of wisdom to students, assuming it was their last chance to say anything to these students, so the last lecture series. The assumption, of course, was that as a last lecture, these would be the final words of this professor and their best words. Now, for Randy, who was scheduled to teach in this series, He didn't have to imagine these circumstances because they were very real to him. A month before giving or scheduled to give the lecture, um, he had received a prognosis that the pancreatic cancer with which he'd been diagnosed a year earlier was back and was terminal. So Randy wanted to instead then convert his last lecture into something meaningful that could continue to serve as a good reference for his kids who would be growing up in his absence. So in September 2007, and I'm sure you can look it up, uh, he gave the lecture that he titled, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. And his feelings about it could be understood from the following words, like what he wanted to accomplish. He said this, I was trying to put myself in a bottle that would one day wash up on the beach for my children. And if I were a painter, I would have painted for them, but since I'm a lecturer, I lecture. Now his lecture, if you listen to it, it's fascinating. It includes stories of his childhood, lessons that he wanted his children to learn, things he wanted his children to know about him and his life. He repeatedly stressed that one should have fun in everything one does, that one should live life to its fullest because one never knows when that life might be taken. He expressed appreciation, actually, for his diagnosis rather than regret or anger because unlike a car accident or something similar, he had been given the gift of time. He had time to have vital conversations with his wife and time to say goodbye to those who had meant so much to him throughout his life. So in his own words, he says, knowing that his time was coming to an end, it helped him leave the field on his own power. So Randy Pausch died about 10 months after giving this lecture, his last lecture. 
Now, perhaps it's a bit morbid, but we're going to go with, go with me here. Have you ever considered what you might say in your last lecture? And perhaps who you'd want to say it to. What would your last lecture include? What would be the final words of wisdom that you would share after however long of life of learning? Well, 2 Timothy, in my perspective, is Paul's last lecture. It is his final letter written while awaiting execution in a Roman prison. Paul was likely beheaded by the Romans under the Emperor Nero sometime in the spring of AD 68. So sometime before his martyrdom came to pass, Paul had penned this letter to a young pastor who was in his early to mid-30s named Timothy. 2 Timothy is a fascinating letter if you read it with this context. It's reflective of what has been It's instructive about what must be, and it's actually slightly prophetic about what might yet be to come, as it is the last written words of a condemned man, I believe actually they are some of his most important words. Could be argued that these are Paul's most important things that he wanted to say to the most important person in his life, pastoring the most important church that he planted. It goes without saying that the second letter to Timothy is a timely sermon series for our church. I'm going to begin by reading 2 Timothy in chapter 1, and we'll see how far we get. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's it. We're going two whole verses. So hold on to your hats. The reason we do this, every series, I think it's necessary to to preach an introduction, give you some context of who is writing and who is receiving this and what is being said. And that's what I hope to accomplish this morning. Some of this might sound very familiar to you. Some of it might be brand new. I don't know. But it's important to understand who this guy Paul is that's writing this last letter. Now, if you look back in the book of Acts, which is a story of how the church grew from the ascension of Christ or after the ascension of Christ, prior to Rising up to heaven, he told his disciples, look, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And within a short amount of time, even perhaps a little bit longer, they really hadn't moved beyond the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, through Acts chapter 8, they hadn't gone anywhere. So God encourages, if you will, a little bit of persecution to get them moving. Stephen, who some would argue is one of the first deacons, he's not really called that, but a servant, if you will, preaches an awesome sermon publicly, and it's all about Jesus, and he gets stoned for doing it. And a zealous Jewish Pharisee named Saul 
is described as standing there holding the coats of those who are murdering Stephen. In Acts chapter 9, this same Pharisee goes and gets uh, certificates of authority, basically. He gets authorization to go and arrest and even kill, if necessary, people of the way. That's what they called Christians. And so this murderous man named Saul travels to a village named Damascus to do just that, to hunt down Christians. Well, then Jesus shows up along the way. You can read this in Acts chapter 9. Unexpectedly blinds Paul, Saul, blows him off his horse, and ultimately he is led into the city and cannot see anything. And he's told to go find a man named Ananias. And Ananias has also been visited by the Lord and told that, by the way, this guy named Saul is going to come and find you. You need to help him. And Ananias' response is very understandable if you understand who Saul was. He says in Acts chapter 9, after saying, hey, you need to find this guy named Saul, he says, "Um, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this dude and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. So think about Ananias. Hey, Saul, I'm one that calls upon the name of Jesus, right? It's like, oh. So Ananias is troubled a little bit by the request. And the Lord says to him, go. Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel And I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Which, again, is not the most attractive invitation to enter into ministry. You want to be in ministry? Let me show you how much you're going to suffer. But that is what Paul's mission and call was. Before that faithful meeting with Jesus, as I've already said, Saul is a very violent man. He was a persecutor of the church But after Jesus saved him, Saul went by his other name, Paul, his Roman name, and a pastor, a church planner, he became a missionary, and ultimately a martyr who actually wrote half of the New Testament, 13 of 26, 27 letters. He preached the gospel to many Jews, but even probably more Gentiles, non-Jewish people who had never heard of the Messiah or Jesus. But throughout his ministry, he became himself intensely persecuted. You can read about some of the sufferings he had in 2 Corinthians 11. He had whippings and stonings and beatings and drownings and imprisonment. Just a list of stuff, a resume of suffering greatly for the name of Jesus. And one of the cities that he visited was called Lystra, L-Y-S-T-R-A. And in Lystra... It's recorded, I believe, in Acts 14, um, where it says this, they stoned Paul, so he goes and preaches, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Okay, so he preaches, persuades people, they stone him, and they're dragging him out because he's not moving. He's all bloody and messed up. They think he's dead. So they drag him out of the city, 
Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, let's see if he's alive, he rose up and went back into the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, and when he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned again to Lystra, a place where he'd been stoned, and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church in prayer and fasting, they committed him to the Lord whom they had believed. So that was his experience at Lystra. Lystra was the city where a young man named Timothy lived. And so it can be assumed that Timothy observed Paul's experience of ministry and went, sign me up. I'd like to be a part of that. And Timothy did join his missionary team. And Timothy at that point was a relatively young man, most likely joined his team when he was in his late teens to early 20s. And so then for about 13 to 14 years, he served with Paul. In many ways, he was Paul's right-hand man. Um, At this point, when when they're writing the letter to him, he's probably around 30, early, mid-30s. And it's clear that Paul loves Timothy. He loves this guy. He calls him my child in the faith, my son in the faith, my beloved child, multiple times. They ministered together all over, traveled to different cities. His name appears as a co-author on several letters, including 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, both letters to Thessalonians and Philemon. He was with Paul always. For nearly 14 years, these men were inseparable as they wrote letters and planted churches and just worked to spread the gospel together. That's really important to understand. Do anything for 13, 14 years is to do something a long time, but with another person. So both of Paul's letters to Timothy are written while Timothy is pastoring a particular church in a city called Ephesus. Sometime on his second missionary journey, Paul had planted that church in the city of Ephesus, and Timothy was likely with him. And Luke records that Paul spent more time really at this church than almost any other church. He spent at least three months preaching at the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem from Corinth, and the preaching was so well received that they basically gathered together and they ultimately planted a church. But it eventually became hostile. I even think it might have been Corinth, I can't remember one of them, but even the synagogue leader became a Christian. But essentially, Paul ended up taking those who believed, and he continued to teach them for upwards of two years in a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. So he spent all kinds of time investing in this church. He loved this church. And eventually, so many people started to become Christians in the city of Ephesus that it started to really impact the actual economy of Ephesus because people were denying their idols and they were no longer basically purchasing uh, the idols that were made. They're actually piling them up in their books of witchcraft and burning it in the streets. Like, that's serious revival that's happening. But it disrupted the economy, and so the riot ensued, and Paul ultimately ended up leaving Ephesus. Before he left the entire region, though, he called the Ephesian elders, and he said, hey, guys, look. I'm going to go. You're likely not going to see me again. Know that wolves are going to come from within. 
and you've got to be really careful. And so they cry, and he ultimately leaves. Well, shortly after his departure, that's exactly what happened. False teachers come into the church of Ephesus, and at some point, Timothy is sent to take care of some issues in the Ephesian church, and there are plenty of issues to take care of. So Paul's first letter is, again, when Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus, and as you read that first letter, it sounds like Timothy is just a really young, shy, kind of uh, inexperienced guy suffering with stomach issues that might be related to anxiety, who really knows, uh, but he is an inexperienced and immature pastor who really doesn't know what the snarf he's doing, okay? He's pastoring a church full of older people that think they know more than he does, and they likely do, so he is very intimidated, and he is struggling. So the first letter, Paul's like, come on, Timothy, stand up. And he encourages him to be strong. And so his first lecture, compared to his last lecture, is part encouragement, part instruction, part kind of almost admonishment. In many ways, it reads, if you read 1 Timothy, like a church planting manual. He's teaching them how to manage a church, how to administrate a church. He writes in 1 Timothy 3.15, Basically, the whole letter is about how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So this is what the first letter is like. It's very instructive, very direct. He's charged to deal with false teachers, and much of the letter deals with what it means to actually be a true pastor. As a pastor, he encourages Timothy to confront false teachers, wage the good warfare, Train for godliness, teach sound doctrine, pray for the kings and leaders, devote yourself to reading the Bible publicly, don't show any partiality, pursue godliness, fight the good faith, keep the commandment unstayed, and guard what's been entrusted to you. So it's very strong, very bold, very direct, very instructive. In fact, there's some real practical instructions about how to lead worship, how to identify and develop elders and deacons, how to shepherd single members, how to take care of widows, how to address slavery. All these things. It's very much like this is how you run a church. And all throughout the letter, uh, Timothy is charged because he is a little scared, a little inexperienced. Like, look, lead courageously, teach skillfully, instruct biblically. So his first words to Timothy are pretty blunt, pretty direct, pretty pragmatic, and relatively impersonal. Relatively impersonal. I say that because 2 Timothy has a little bit of a different tone. And that's what happens when we get older. I know you won't admit this, but I watched Frozen 2 last night, and I cried at a couple parts of it. (laughs) Not going to lie. I find as I get older, things make me a little more emotional. Maybe that's because I'm more sensitive. But just as we get older, we're not as blunt, not as direct, maybe not as pragmatic. And this is what 2 Timothy is like. This is what his last lecture is like. Paul is, relatively speaking, an old man. And he's writing to Timothy, who's no longer like just greenhorn pastor. 
He's been doing it for a little bit now. He's kind of had his scars and his wounds. But we can imagine, or we should try to imagine, what Timothy is feeling. Because Paul is going to die. And Timothy knows it. And he has spent 14 years with Paul. Paul has always been there. Paul has been there as a mentor, as an emergency break glass guy. Like, he has been there from the very beginning. Timothy could lean on Paul. He could lean on Paul's advice, lean on Paul's instruction, lean on Paul's authority. He could say stuff like, yeah, you guys better clean up as if Paul's going to be here. But not anymore. And so you can imagine, as he imagines, life without Paul. What that would be like. And it would likely fill him with some fear. Some anxiety, like, ugh, can I do this on my own? And Paul knows this. And so he uses his final letter to, in many ways, embolden him and instruct him and inspire him to fulfill his ministry in the way that Paul fulfilled his. And so his tone is very different in this letter. He's less instructive, though there is instruction, and more encouraging. He's less practical, and he's more intimate, more personal. Instead of reminders about how to manage the church, here's what you do, make sure the stove's off, that kind of stuff. Like, instead of direct instructions about how to manage things, for his last lecture, Paul says, let me tell you about my aim in life. Let me tell you about my love. Let me remind you of my example. Let me, let me remind you of my suffering. Let me remind you of the people who betrayed me. It's very personal. He sounds like a wise old man sharing what he learned from life. And honestly, it seems like the older we grow or the closer we get to death, our view of what is most important to say or share or pass on changes. I know that if I was my 21-year-old self, there were things that I thought were really important that today at age 47, I go, eh, it just didn't matter. Some of the things are personal. Some of those things are relational. Some of those things are doctrinal. You're kind of like, oh, that's just not as important as I thought it was. It's like parenting, right? Before you have kids, and parents, you'll know what this is like. Before you have kids, you think you know everything. I'm sure you weren't like me, but I remember in the grocery store, no kids. We have no kids. I have five now. No kids, though. Seeing people with kids going, that's not how I would parent my kid, Right? Just condescending, like you just know everything. Then you have a kid, and you're like, what was I thinking? And instead of judging people, you're expecting other people to judge you as your kids are going crazy at the grocery store, and you're like, I'm just not here to make friends. I don't care, right? <laughs> but then, let me just give you some insight. Like, for those who have little kids right now, enjoy it. It's wonderful. It is the easiest it's going to get because when they become teenagers, you once again realize you don't know anything, right? It's just hard. But 
with all these life experiences, right, I, I would share certain parenting truths with people that were very different than when I had a two-year-old, right? Let me tell you how to parent an 18-year-old, like different worlds. And so as life happens, we, I think, slim down the stuff that's most important. Like, what is most important, really? Like, I remember what happened, like, after your fifth kid, okay, so your first kid, this is a totally side note, but I don't even care. Your first kid, right, every peep, oh, are you okay, right? You get the monitors, you got all this stuff. My fifth kid, that door was closed, headphones are on, they'd be able to scream bloody murder for me to come and help that child. Why? Because I realized what's important and what wasn't. You're like, you were such a horrible parent. Maybe, maybe. My kids will all have therapy someday and we will find out. But I think as we get older, we understand those things. In 2012, it's fascinating. I didn't read the whole thing, but there's a book called The 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. The author of the book interviewed 1,500 people over the age of 65, asking them generally this question, what haunts you most about your life choices? It's a fascinating read. You can read summaries of it. But among other things, most, like generally, they go, this is what most of the interviewed elders said. So at least 65 and older. They said some of the most important things are regrets they had, not resolving family estrangement. 30 lessons for living. Tried and true advice from the wisest Americans. But one of the things was the regret of not resolving family estrangement. The regret of putting off saying how they truly felt. The regret of spending too much time worrying. The regret of not taking enough career chances. So if you want to say it more positively, like as in things they wish they would have done as opposed to not done. They wish they would have committed to exploring ways to forgive and reconcile. They wish that they would say or had said what's on their mind while the person was still around. They wish they wouldn't worry so much because worrying wasted life. And they wish they would have tried something new and not gotten so stuck in a box or one thing, taking some risks. Those are some good words. There's a lot more that they had to say. And so, as you read 2 Timothy, you need to read it in the sense of this old man. He's not super old, but he's seasoned. And he's writing at the conclusion of his ministry. A ministry like few others would ever have. And essentially, he's identifying the most important things to remember and sharing them with young Timothy. So I'm just going to give you four basic things. This is going to be a general overview of the letter, and we'll go through it, obviously, through the series. So the first thing he tells them is, guard the faith that you have heard. Guard the faith that you have heard. Timothy has been entrusted with something, a message that, 
was entrusted the person who gave it to him. It's a very old message. Today, it's thousands upon thousands of years old. And it was a message that was delivered in person by Jesus, testified first by his friends and disciples, passed on to other disciples, and on to other disciples, and on to other disciples, and over several thousand years, it eventually came to you and to me. And that faith has been guarded over thousands of years, protected to ensure that the truth remains the truth. And what is this entrusted message that is so important? The gospel. We use that word frequently. The Bible calls the gospel the power of God for salvation. calls the gospel the foundation of our identity, calls the gospel the way that we grow, the solution to every problem, the hope beyond this life, the gospel. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance. He says this is the most important thing, not the only important thing, the most important thing the gospel. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. And so I have a question for you. It's really simple. Do you know the gospel? What is the gospel? Can you share, can you you say the gospel in, in 60 seconds or less? Because you can say it in 60 seconds or less. The gospel, the word gospel, right, we know is good news. And there's some context to understand, like, why do we need to hear good news when we don't maybe know the bad news? So it's some work to be done for what the bad news is. But let's assume we know the bad news, which is this. The world is under God's wrath because man rebelled against him. But the good news is that God saves sinners. The good news is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and that he lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death that we deserve. And three days after he died on that cross for our sins, he rose to prove that everything about who he said he was is true and now he offers you the free gift of salvation. If you repent and believe, you have eternal life. That's the gospel. That wasn't even 60 seconds, I don't think. But that's the basic message. There's so many things we think about passing on to our kids and passing on to our friends. About like, There's one thing that's actually most important because there's one thing that speaks to the next life and not just this life. And that is the gospel. And even though the message certainly has historical facts that we need to remember, the gospel doesn't give us advice or something to do that we might get back to God. It declares something to be believed about what God has done himself for us. That's the gospel. And Paul will hit that over and over again, partially preach the gospel, but also believe the gospel. Which goes to my second one. The second one is we are to teach the faith that we're guarding. We are to teach the faith that we're guarding. What does that mean? Well, the gospel and the truth inherently in it is to be believed and is to be protected because 2 Corinthians 11 says there's another gospel. Did you know that? 
There's another spirit and there's another Jesus. There's all kinds of different saviors being offered to save us, to give us hope and joy and ultimate security. Different Jesuses even. So it does need to be protected and guarded, but also needs to be passed on. This is what Paul will say in his second chapter of his letter. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust. So I've entrusted you something. He says, entrust to faithful men who will teach faithful men, who will teach faithful men. Trust to faithful women who will teach faithful women. All of it. Pass it on. Paul reminds us that First, we need to be strengthened by the grace before we're able to share that grace, that we need to be a disciple before we can even think about making a disciple. But let me just give you a quick news flash, and I don't mean to be offensive to you, but it might be offensive. Did you know that the mission of God didn't climax on your conversion? It wasn't like, oh, finally, this person's saved. Let's all go home. It's all done. God's mission didn't climax on your conversion and it wasn't intended to terminate on your discipleship. It was to be passed on. It's not that we simply must keep going. We should. It's that we must keep multiplying. And that starts in our home, but then it extends beyond that into our neighborhoods, in our community. Paul is going to die. You are going to die. Every pastor, every church, every Christian is interim. Every single one is interim. One day, you and I will die And one day, this church is not going to be here. But the message has to continue. And we have a responsibility with the time we've been given and the generation that we find ourselves in a place to pass it on and then go be with Jesus. What you have been taught and you were taught by somebody needs to be taught to somebody. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. Pass it on, Timothy, because guess one day you're going to die too. And guess what? He does. The third thing Paul generally is telling Timothy in this letter is to live out the faith that you teach. People are like, oh, the number one people that Jesus condemned are the religious people. Well, yes and no. The number one people that Jesus really condemned were the hypocrites. Today, words like evangelical or even Christian, they they have lost a lot of their meaning. I don't even know what they mean anymore. So many people ascribe to them. Perhaps it would be better for us to start calling us followers of Christ or people of the way. I like people of the way because just as there are many ways to think, there are actually many ways to live in this culture. Paul tells us to be active 
in fighting against or resisting worldly passions and pursuing the things of Christ. And while it would be great to believe that backsliding only happens when you're young, let's be honest. The truth is there are many mature and older Christians. They may not be youth, but they give themselves to some very youthful things. And so, Paul is really going to call Timothy and hopefully call us all, like, don't waste anything. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy on pursuing earthly things. That isn't to suggest you shouldn't spend any money on earthly things, but not to give yourself fully. Seek His kingdom. Invest in His kingdom. Live for His kingdom because it is the only kingdom that is not passing away. It is the only kingdom that is going to last beyond death. But the last thing that Paul tells Timothy is to preach. Preach with your life. Preach the faith. Now, it's been said, and I've said it before, it's been attributed to many people, so I'm not really sure who said it, to preach the gospel and occasionally use words. And while true in spirit, there is nothing more powerful than the proclamation of God's truth with your mouth using words. Nothing. Paul preached the word, proclaimed the word, declared the word at every opportunity he had. You read Acts 18 and, or 19 and 20, it shows that Paul spoke God's word to large crowds. He taught God's word in small groups. He taught God's word to individuals. He did it privately. He did it publicly. He was devoted to teaching and proclaiming and preaching God's word. Think of all the things that Christians preach today, that they proclaim today other than God's word. There was a time when Christians were known as people of the book. And I'm not sure that Christians can be characterized by that primarily anymore. But Paul will say, preach the word. Not your foolish arguments, not your opinions. Preach the word. He will tell Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Preach the word, he says. And you read these words in a pastoral epistle and you think, I need to find a church where a pastor preaches the word. No! I mean, yes, but no! The worst thing we can have is a bunch of people gathering around to listen to one guy exercise his gift and preach the word and then go silent the rest of the week. You are called to preach the word. Did you know you're supposed to be a preacher? A proclaimer of God's truth? This is not just instruction for pastors or Bible study leaders, but for every member of Restoration Road Church. Preach. And you will only preach the word if you treasure the word. And you will only treasure the word if you are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that these are the very words of God. That in these words lie hope for the hopeless, 
healing for the brokenhearted, life for the dead. If you don't treasure God's word like that, you won't talk about it ever. And so Paul is always telling Timothy, go back to the word, preach the word, because there are so many things to distract us from that. Well, 2 Timothy is Paul's last lecture. And possibly this sermon series is in part mine. Paul ends his most important letter, though, with some interesting words. He says to Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is later for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul's last words are his best words to his best friend. And he ends his letter as a man who knows and is convinced he has fulfilled his calling and he is ready to die and meet the Lord. He's given everything he had to give. And so I ask you, can you, can we all say that we have so fulfilled the ministry we have received that I'm ready to meet the Lord? I've given it all for what God asked me to do. See, because more than just the last contemplations of a dying man, these words are supposed to be very challenging invitations. And this is the invitation. It's inviting you to ask this. Am I fighting the good faith? Am I fighting the good faith? Am I finishing the race? Am I keeping the faith? Am I fighting the good faith? I'm not even telling you what that means. But you certainly know someone who's fighting and someone who's not. Am I finishing the race? I'm not telling you what that means, but I know someone who's standing still and someone who's running. Am I keeping the faith? Now, I realize when you ask those kind of questions, it just feels, ugh. Right? You start... I imagine, because I've done this, you start asking those kind of questions or a pastor says, are you finishing the race? Are you keeping the faith? And you just beat yourself up. You start being filled with self-contempt. I stink. I am horrible. No, I'm not. So, please don't do that. It is my responsibility to ask that question, but don't give in to self-contempt. Here's where I want you to rest. And this is beautiful. Never forget the most important things that Paul actually teaches in his letters are found in one word that he repeats. One word. Both letters to Timothy, first and second, beginning and end the same way, if you look. He greets Timothy by writing, Grace! From God. And he ends his letters by saying, 
grace be with you. May the undeserved love of God be with you. Everything that Paul has to say, everything he wants to be remembered, everything that's a part of his last lecture is bookended by grace. It's not that those things he says are unimportant. It's to say that grace is more important. To know that, like, look, I'm sure you're not running as you ought, fighting as you ought, keeping as you ought, but grace. God loves you. God knows you. Dare I say God desires you. Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 5, by grace I am more than I am. But he also says, 1 Corinthians 15, he also said, but that grace was not in vain. He didn't waste the grace. It's also, last thing, noteworthy that Paul didn't write a church, he wrote a person for his last letter. Every church that's planted usually begins with an idea that he puts in the head of one servant, but it never ends there. I'm reminded of Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. As we all consider what amounts to an uncertain future, which we're always in an uncertain future, so to speak, other than the fact that Jesus is returning at some point. Let us find rest in the certainty of this, that Jesus builds his church. Jesus builds his church. His mission is not dependent upon any one person, but he does call faithful people to fulfill their ministries in building the church. So just be that faithful one. And in truth, you may look at your life right now and go, man, I really haven't started that great. I'm not fighting that well. I haven't ran that hard. I haven't kept much of anything. Okay. Confess. And finish well. It's never too late to finish well. Because until you return to Jesus, or he returns to you, you're still fighting, you're still running, and you're still keeping it. So maybe you didn't start well. Grace. Embrace it. Receive the forgiveness and love of Jesus, and then finish well to his glory. And I promise you for your joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the grace that you show us. We recognize, Lord, that when you saved us, you called us into a mission. Certainly you called us to believe, but you called us, Lord, to continue to invest in your kingdom, to spread your truth, to share your grace. And Lord, many of us here maybe have never considered whether we're fighting well or running well or keeping anything well. I pray, Lord, that you will search our hearts 
You remind us of the grace that you have given us. It's a grace that saves, but it's also a grace that moves. Help us, Lord, to honor you with all that we have and to really understand what is most important in this life while we still live this life. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.